Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 297th episode of Awards Chatter the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most significant figures of our time, a man who was instrumental in the creation of computer software, changing the way we all live our lives, and who is not only one of the richest men in the world, but is also one of the greatest philanthropists of all time, the principal founder of Microsoft and the co-founder and co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which is the largest private philanthropic foundation in the history of the world, Bill Gates. Over the course of our conversation at the Element 52 Resort in Telluride, Colorado, where Davis Guggenheim's Netflix docuseries Inside Bill's Brain, Decoding Bill Gates, had its world premiere, the 63-year-old and I discussed how he, along with his childhood pal, the late Paul Allen, first got into computers and software in the first place and ended up creating Microsoft in 1975. What prompted him and his wife, Melinda, to create their foundation in 2000? and along with Warren Buffett, signed the Giving Pledge in 2010. Why, for Inside Bill's Brain, he agreed to be a central part of a film for the first time, and what he hopes people will learn from checking out the three-part docuseries, which will hit Netflix on September 20th. Plus, much more, including big-picture questions you have to ask someone as smart as Bill Gates if you get the chance. Like, is there a God? What is the biggest threat facing the world today? And how would the world be different if Bill Gates had never developed an interest in computers? But first, I was joined at the same Element 52 resort in Telluride by Davis Guggenheim, the documentary filmmaker best known for his Oscar-winning 2006 documentary An Inconvenient Truth, to discuss his own remarkable life and career and what it was like making Inside Bill's Brain with Bill Gates. Davis, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you on the podcast. wanted to begin by noting that you are part of a very small club of families with multi-generation, multiple generations of people who have won Oscars for documentaries. I want to ask you, you know, for people who may not know, what was, what was it like growing up the son of Charles Guggenheim, who was a great documentary filmmaker in his own right? Thank you for asking about him. He was my father. He was a great father. Forget all his accomplishments. He was just a lovely, good decent man. And, you know, I, I loved him so much. He also rode his bike. We were lived in Washington, DC, rode his bike down to Georgetown and made movies for 55 years. And it's fun to brag about your father. So he, he won four Academy Awards. It was nominated, I think 11 times. It might've been 12 and made all these great social justice movies and really taught me 
the core of what I know how to do. From a very early age, you would go along with him to stuff, right? Yeah. So one of my earliest memories was being on Robert Kennedy's presidential campaign plane. Which and, he was documenting. Yeah, and I was five years old, and I was just like, what is going on here? This is incredible. <laughs> this is like a circus. I want to be part of this circus. I didn't know what filmmaking was. but And then I remember weeks later when my father got the call that Robbie Kennedy was killed. Oh. And it was the first time I ever saw my father cry. And how old were you? I was five. So I, and that was really a short period of time. Yeah. But um, they were close, and my father really believed in him. And yeah. so, It's interesting. A lot of people don't want to do exactly what their parents did. <laughs> and in fact, I think there was some of you admired your father clearly, yeah. but you did yeah. not want to do the exact same thing. So it's, it's kind of interesting. I guess you, you knew you wanted to be in this yeah. filmmaking world, but not on the same end of it as him. Yeah. I, I remember senior year in college doing the math and going, Hmm, there's no room for documentarians anymore. The great ones have already passed. <laughs> Petty Baker, yeah. who just actually yeah, died a couple weeks yeah. ago, who was a hero to me, the Maisels. I was like, and Ken Burns was just starting to do great work. And I was like, there's no room for me. I'm going to take my Volkswagen Jetta, drive to LA and make it in Hollywood. And, for, and you know, I'm never going to, and, and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm never going to make documentaries. So how did episodic TV become your thing for a while? It was a little bit of desperation. Yeah. I'd worked for a producer named Bobby Newmeyer, and the first movie we made was Sex, Lies, and Videotape. So I, I was around Steven Soderbergh in that movie. I didn't do very much, but, and I really wanted to be an independent film director, but um, it was hard. And yeah. uh, uh, I made some short films and finally got work directing television, which I had sort of disdain for. I thought it was, you know, the JV of, <laughs> of uh, directing. But it, was, it turned out to be really great. It turned out to be one of the most exciting things I ever did. And I learned a lot. You know, when you're, I directed different shows like ER and NYPD Blue. Uh, I, I was sort of a protege of David Milch. Yeah, did, I wanted we, to ask you about that. We did Deadwood together. So I learned a lot about storytelling through de directing television. And good and bad television, you know. So. And this was over a number of years, a lot of great shows also. I know 24 and Alias and The Shield and all kinds of stuff. And I don't want to overstate that. I was, in most cases, a guest director. Mm -hmm. So on, for instance, ER, yeah. there were probably, I don't know, probably 22 episodes that year, 24, and uh, I was one of 20, yeah, 20 directors. Right. But I was sort of like, a, you know, I was like, and to be that guy, the sort of the gun for hire was, it was yeah. a good experience. Yeah. But for you, throughout that whole period, the sort of holy grail was still feature films. If you could direct a feature film, uh, I should say a narrative feature film, yeah, yeah. that would be great, right? That was what I was heading towards. And I was, the plan was I'd found the script, I developed it. I took it to Warner Brothers and sold it. It was the script, early script for training day. Yes. I knew you were heading in this direction. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and really had a, a great plan for it. It was going to, in my mind, it was going to be like a new version of the French connection, really hard edged, tough cop movie, but a character study. And I had a really good plan for it. And to make a long story short, I fought really hard to get Denzel Washington in it. Warner Brothers did not want him. They wanted a white actor. They wanted Kurt Russell or Clint Eastwood. And I fought for Denzel Washington. When we got Denzel Washington to say yes, the first thing he did was fire me. That's insane. <laughs> what, but like, did he know that you were the guy that was the reason he was there? I still have never met Denzel, so I don't know. Probably, uh, probably don't want to. It was very, <laughs> it was very surprising. And I'm laughing about it now. It yeah. was devastating at the time. Yeah, it really threw me for a loop. I was sort of, 
I was very depressed for several years, but now I look back and think what a great piece of fortune because it sort of sent me back towards documentaries and back towards the things that I wanted to do. Was the first kind of important thing for you with, with documentaries the first year? It was. Yeah. Can you tell people a little bit about what that, how you got into that and, and what it's about? Because in a way, thematically, there's a, I think a, a string that runs through all your docs maybe, but we'll yeah. start with that. Yeah. It's interesting. Like if you really want to go to the core of it, my fantasy still, you know, we always have this, like if I could, you know, some people say, well, I'd, I'd love to pitch baseball or I'd like to be a quarterback for the, you know, or I'd like, uh, my fantasy is always to, is to teach American history. Really? Not that I'd be any good at it, but I don't know. Maybe that's I, maybe my, one of my favorite teachers was a American history teacher. And uh, during that time, after I was fired from training day, and it was weird because Warner Brothers was really good to me. And then when they, when Denzel fired me, they all turned on me. Like I was persona non grata there. It wasn't just that I got fired, but I, that it was all the work I had done on a previous film there. I couldn't get arrested, so I spent a lot of time just reading and and I started to become enamored by these young people who became first year teachers. A lot of them were Teach for America. Yeah. I was like, you know, you know, fuck Hollywood. <laughs> See, if I don't know if I can <laughs> yeah, say that on your show. Say whatever you, screw, want. you know, screw it. I'm gonna just do what I I'm gonna do I'm gonna follow what I love. Yeah. And so I followed and I, I got a little camera I'm holding it in my hands right now. It's like ten inches. Yeah. It was a prosumer shitty little <laughs> mini D V camera and I went down and drove to these schools. One was in East LA, one was in Watts. One was in Compton, one was in Santa Monica, and there are five. I can't remember, I'm missing one. Um, and I followed these teachers from the very first day, very first day of teaching, all the way through their first year. And the movie, and the, it was a documentary called The First Year. Yes. Just a random question. Was your father around long enough to see you get into documentaries? It was the only film that my father ever saw of mine. Really? And uh, there was one screening back east of this movie, The yeah. First Year, and I remember in the middle of the movie, going to the bathroom and coming back out. And I, and I realized that he was, he had left his seat and was in the back watching kind of like, like pacing, like a dad on the sidelines of a soccer game. Yeah. And he was, I could watch him watch the movie I'd made and it was a, and he loved it. Yeah. And, and, uh, he was so proud and, and awesome. uh, proud sounds cliche. He was just, he just really appreciated that his son had done that. Yeah. So it was, and it, it was, it was nice. It was, it was very different from the film that he would have made. Yeah. So yeah. he was seeing me find my voice. I would say it's the beginning of me finding my voice as yeah. a director. So is it purely coincidental or is there a reason in your mind why almost all of your docs share the theme of education? I just want to mention okay. the first year, An Inconvenient Truth, of course, for which you won your Oscar and were so ahead of a lot of other people on identifying climate change as, a, as an issue and following Gore doing the same. And, but waiting for Superman about charter schools. He named me Malala, which premiered here a few years ago, opened the festival. Um, and the list goes on. I, before you answer that question, I had just, I wonder if a factor in that might be, you know, I'd read in one thing that you, you had said you, I guess had, and probably may, I don't know if it ever goes away, had dyslexia yeah. and that there were, there was at least one teacher who was not nice about that. And maybe that made you, I don't know, something about your own education that would yeah. make you gravitate towards yeah. learning about other people. Let me, you take it away. Well, first of all, let me say how appreciative I am that you, you actually <laughs> read up on me before the interview. It's so nice. Some interviews are so kind of superficial and, uh, this is really nice to thank go, you. go deep. I, I, uh, and, uh, thank you for thank you. taking the time. Yeah. I was not a good student. 
I got report cards saying he's he's really bright, but he's lazy. And more often, he's a class clown, and he's not doesn't apply himself. And uh, and I had a shitty time in school. I, I you know the day I graduated from college, it was like, you know, like chains were taken off of me. Right. But um, I really appreciated the few teachers that helped me. Mm-hmm. It was like these were lifelines, and that they saw that there was something in me that was worth teaching, even though <laughs> on every indication, in terms of grades, in terms of testing, in terms of everything else. And I could see what a ma- magic a teacher could do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess it certainly extends into this latest great docuseries here about Bill Gates, because, yeah. I mean, education has been, a, I think, a priority of, of his among the many yeah. other philanthropic things. But I guess let's start with the obvious question. Just, it sounds almost funny. Like, how does one just cross paths with Bill Gates to begin with? Well, it was through education. I was making Waiting for Superman, okay. which is about public schools yeah. and... Um, you, you said that it's about charter schools, I which I want to... No, 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 no. Yeah. And it's it's the popular perception that it's about charter schools. And that's one of the one of the problems with the issue and one of the problems with how that film is perceived. But you can tell it's a pet peeve. <laughs> but um, I wanted to interview someone from the business world to, to talk about how the failing of public education in so many places mm-hmm. affected business and how does it affect like the, uh, our economy. And so I asked if I could interview Bill and it was an incredible interview. And, and he surprised me in that interview. You know, what I imagine most people think, you know, super bright guy who codes all the time, <laughs> but I didn't expect him to be so thoughtful about it and, and offer like really deep insight mm-hmm. into things. And so we kept the conversation going. He came to many more screenings of waiting for Superman. And we, we had many, many long nights just talking. Last night, we did it here in Telluride yeah. last night for like three hours wow. with Tara Westover, who wrote the book Educated. Yeah. We were digging deep into why, what's happened to the American middle class, what happened to in public education, you know, do we even call them charter schools anymore? Mm-hmm. And I just love those conversations. Yeah. And I was like, I need to do a series about Bill because I don't think people understand him the way I do. No, but he'd never, to my knowledge, done anything like this. So how did you, do you know why that was and how did you get him to get past that? I wrote him a long letter describing my intentions and my process. I mean, process is different from a lot of people. I always feel like when I make a documentary, I always say that we're making the film together. Mm-hmm. A lot of documentarians would bristle at that. They'd say that you're, you're, you're surrendering your integrity. But I did that with Al Gore. I did that with Malala and other people. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page from Led yeah. Zeppelin. Yeah. And I love, that, I love that when they feel like you're making something together, you can go deep and they're expressing themselves and almost you're helping them express themselves. Was it at all a concern of yours that he is a guy who, for whatever reasons, we all have the reasons we are the way we are, just doesn't show a lot of emotion in any way most of the time. I mean, in your film, I think we see more of it than we've ever seen maybe before, but like, is it hard to make a film about somebody who's kind of holds it close to the vest? Yeah, it's not called Inside Bill's Heart. Right, that's right. This series is called that's Inside right. Bill's Brain. Right. And what I learned is it's, it's very easy to spend time with him and say, oh, he, he doesn't have emotion. But actually, when you get to know him better, you realize he has a lot of emotion. And Melinda will tell you when they're in movies together, the kids will look over and they'll see that Bill's crying. Yeah. Like, he's the first to cry. Yeah. He doesn't display his emotion a lot. And his brain is so dominant and powerful that that sort of leads the way. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the things he's doing, and it's, it sounds kind of cliche and kind of flippant, but he saved millions of children yeah. by bringing vaccines 
the vaccines that our children have. It's so simple. You know, vaccines that our children get as routine, he's brought them to third world countries and uh, and millions of children are alive because of what Melinda and Bill do. That's led by a passion. It begins with a passion Mm -hmm. and then it's led by this incredible brain that just wants to get it right. Where other sort of smaller groups are sort of super passionate and they want to they want to hit this one village right. or they want to do the and he's like no yeah. I want to be effective right. I want to get it done I want to I want to change the systems in place to make this happen that's what's so exciting about him but it's very easy to to think that he's not emotional and he actually really is one of the ways it seems that you got him to open up a little bit more than usual I don't know if this was deliberate or just a way to sort of keep things visually different, but it seems like you're often asking him questions when he's doing other things like playing tennis or walking or whatever. (laughs) Was that because you found that he kind of opens up more when he's got a kind of multitask or what was that? Yeah. I have to be careful with him because if it's like pressing play on a three hour DVD (laughs) uh, where you could say, you know, so tell me what that, what the latest reactor is like. I did it last night. It's like, is a prototype of the new reactor half size or a quarter size. And then he goes on a 30 minute tear about the specific reactors and how they're built. And I'm like, no, like <laughs> I just lost 30 minutes. Right. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's no, that's no disrespect to him. Right, I mean, right. he just, that's how his, how he works. Yeah. So I found that when he move when he's moving and Melinda said this, when he's super passionate about something, he paces around and you'll see it. Like, so I designed these walks that yeah. we would do together. We go on these loops because I need steady cam cameras. Yeah follow us. And after 15 minutes, they can't carry the camera anymore. Right. So we had three steady cam units. Oh, so taking we, laps, <laughs> we'd come around, we'd do laps and, and no one would see the difference and he right. wouldn't see the difference, yeah. but to be behind us and just sort of wander and talk. And, yeah. uh, it, it pulled out a side of him that I, I don't think most people see. Right. It was, it, it worked really well. Yeah. And then rapid fire questioning yes. as, uh, we, as, uh, he was playing tennis. That was great. Yeah. yeah. So like out of nowhere, he started singing the camp song right. from his childhood <laughs> exactly. camp, which was super surprising. Yeah. So like it did, it did pull out, you know, it sort of turned off his, the process of doing quick interviews and the process right. of getting to move sort of turned off his multiprocessor. Last question. Yeah. What is it that you hope people who tune in for these three parts of, uh, it's interesting. I don't know if you'd ever done a docu-series as opposed to a documentary feature. I didn't think so. Somebody that comes away at, let's say like typically you go on Netflix, you binge something, they'll binge these three parts. What do you want them to leave it thinking or doing differently? I I hope people get, it's a great question and and something I don't really think about a lot, but I get my first answer is I, I hope people, capture a little bit of what I feel when I'm around Bill. Mm -hmm. And what I feel when I'm around Bill is that the chaos and the noise and the confusion that I feel every day when I read the paper Mm -hmm. about the world's most intractable problems, which sort of bring me down and make me feel like, oh, and and even more so now than 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. that that these things are so hard and so impossible and why even try? That when you're around Bill, you go, oh, okay, there's someone really smart thinking about these things. And he sees his ability to be dispassionate and turn off his passion Mm -hmm. and to see things in a much more simple and rational way gives me an incredible optimism. Mm -hmm. You know, the way he talks about climate change, which I can get really dark about, the way he seems, you know, about politics. You know, I feel better when I'm around Bill. 
because of because of the way he the work he's doing and there aren't many people like him who are, who are doing what he's doing so i hope people when they watch it they feel that way thanks for doing this oh cool it was really fun to talk with you you too this is fun and now for my conversation with the man himself bill gates Mr. Gates, thank you so much for doing this. Honor to have you on the podcast. We begin every episode with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in Seattle, Washington, in the United States. My mom taught school for a while, but then did a lot of volunteer and board work, and my dad had a good-sized law firm. And, you know, growing up, kids tend to classify each other. There's the jocks, there's the nerds, there's the whatever, the band kid. If we found kids that you grew up with uh, today and asked, what do you remember about Bill as a kid? How would they describe you? Uh, Certainly by age 13, I was in a sort of an extreme nerd, math, (laughs) science, computers were just coming along and I got a chance to be very early there. But I had very uh, 100% nerd positioning. (laughs) Can you share, I mean, it's a it's a famous story, but just in case there's somebody out there who doesn't know what happened when you're 13, it's seventh grade, and for the first time you're exposed to a computer, I think kids today, for instance, might not even be able to conceive what that visually looked like or how that worked. I still have a hard time grasping how you sat down and figured out how to operate it, but I wonder if you could just set the scene a little bit. Yeah, computers used to be unbelievably expensive. And so our school was lucky enough that we'd gotten, I think, about $5,000 to have a terminal that over a phone line could call in and you could write programs in this basic language. But they were charging you, so if you messed up your program, you could spend a lot of money. A few teachers came in, had bad experiences. They disappeared. So a few kids decided, okay, we're going to figure this thing out. I had done very well on the national math exam. So people talked me into, oh, you know, you think you can help come and try and help us figure this thing out. And four of us kind of went nuts over it and ended up teaching the programming courses and later using the computer to actually do all the uh, high school scheduling, deciding when the classes would meet, who would be what class. And that started both myself and Paul Allen on this journey of realizing the magic of software. And when he saw that the microprocessor would make it super cheap, saying, oh my God, this is going to create a personal computer and that will be magical. Paul was two years older than you. And I know you've talked about in the docuseries, physically very, you know, just a much bigger guy and all of that. Why do you think you took a liking to each other? Well, we were both intensely curious And I had excess energy and, you know, when he would say, hey, can you figure this out? That would get me to think about it day and night. He read massively. He was the one who showed me an electronics magazine where it first talked about Intel Corporation with this chip that could hardly do anything. But, you know, the idea that would double in power every year, we could do the math and say, okay, it will you know, in three or four years, be able to do more than a mini computer, which was a fairly expensive Mm -hmm. computer at the time. And we thought, hey, we need to be in on this revolution. You know, then when I went off to Harvard, Paul actually moved back to Boston to keep bugging me, you know, was now the time to go start a company. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to do a, 
a personal computer company, I convinced them we should just do the software piece. And that became Microsoft. You know, in 1975, I drop out of school. We moved to where our first customer was and start hiring people for Microsoft. Just in case there are listeners who are sort of less literate about tech, software, can you just describe why it was so revolutionary, the idea of that? Because in terms of getting your computer to do anything before there was Microsoft and Windows and all of that, it was a totally different ballgame, right? Right. So there's very few computers in the world, like less than a million and they're expensive, and they're mostly used for big organizational things like printing out bills or you know, figuring out how to make weapons. And so as these computers are becoming pervasive, the question is, okay, who's going to write the software? Software was always kind of an afterthought. IBM didn't even charge for it. Mm-hmm. The idea that it would become the limiting factor, that was something that we saw, and we saw there would be software standards like what became Microsoft Windows or what became Microsoft Office 15 years after we started down that path. Then people, you know, today the idea, oh, there are software companies and software's actually worth something. That wasn't understood that the instructions would be a key part of this whole personal computing phenomena. And even things like the idea of a mouse or having applications to click or any of that, it was, that came along because of you guys. Yeah, the actual foundational work, a company called Xerox, which had made money selling copying machines, they did a research center in Palo Alto and a lot of companies, particularly Apple and Microsoft, saw this kind of graphical mouse-driven approach and Apple with the Macintosh and Microsoft with Windows took that and really made it work and got thousands and thousands of applications. Now we kind of take it for granted. I want to go backwards for one second, because before you graduated from high school and went off to Harvard, you and Paul Allen actually had another company before Microsoft. And I wonder, you know, this is just sort of a cool bit of trivia for listeners. What was the first attempt at a business venture together? Well, so the early chip that Intel made was called the 8008. And Paul said to me, could I write this basic computer language for it? And I said, no way, that ship is not good enough. It wasn't until 1974, the 8080, that I could do that. But we had this other goofy application where the rubber hoses you put out on the road that count the number of cars, people want that data put into a graphical form. And so we underbid everybody by building a an 8008 machine that I wrote all the software for. We could read those tapes and print out those graphs. And you're 17 years old. Uh, actually, we started this one. I was uh, 14 when Four. we conceived of it and 15 when we really started making money. Wow. Uh, I was 17 when I left to go to Harvard. Okay. And Trafodated made us, you know, like $30,000. So... To us at the time, it seemed like a lot of right, a lot of money. Right. <laughs> so you did very well on your SATs. I think we, if I can show off for you, fifteen ninety, I heard, is pretty incredible. And you go to Harvard, and there, during your freshman year, at the end of the same hallway, I gather, is is somebody else who would be an important part of your life. Yeah, actually, by sophomore year, I meet uh, Steve Ballmer, mm-hmm. and he's. Super energetic, you know, also kind of likes math and physics, 
And so he and I become very good friends, although, you know, he stays at Harvard, actually graduates, <laughs> uh, starts, goes to Procter & Gamble for a little bit and starts at Stanford Business School. Then I'm running Microsoft and I've just hired a bunch of engineers. I haven't really hired other skill sets in. I've kind of overcommitted the company. We're not, you know, super well organized. So I decided I really need Steve. It wasn't easy, but I convinced him to drop out of Stanford Business School. And so he's the first person to really try and help us shape how we hire lots of people and how we organize. And he becomes a central partner in scaling up Microsoft. And, you know, you talk about the establishment of Microsoft, the idea of having this company, which, you know, if there's a listener who doesn't know why it's called Microsoft initially in that first year with a hyphen, why is it called Microsoft? Yeah, so these new computers, which were on a chip, they were called microcomputers. And we were the company that was writing the software for the microcomputers. And we wanted to have a big company, so we didn't want to name it Gates and Allen or something goofy like that. We wanted to have like a, you know, almost an IBM type name that, you know, there might be something really gigantic there. And so the name we picked was Microsoft. Mm -hmm. And the reason you had to pick a name and the reason the company was really kind of, in a way, forced into existence was you said you could do something before you knew for sure that you could do it, right? That when this call from Albuquerque comes in, right? Yeah, well, when the 8080 chip comes out, it's clear that's better than the mini computers. And so it's easy to write a basic for it. And then, you know, we're kind of back in Boston and thinking, geez, what should we do? Well, then the kit computer comes out on the cover of Popular Electronics Magazine it's actually on the stand December 1974, even though the cover date's January yeah. <laughs> 1975. And it's a cold Boston winter. And we're kind of, that's like, oh my God, we better get going. The revolution's going to happen without us. Right. That's when we call them up and say, hey, we're writing a basic. Tell us a few more details about your thing. And they, you know, they treated like, yeah, a lot of goofy people are calling up. But then a few weeks later, we called up and we asked extremely detailed data about how you get print characters and type characters in because we were literally making the tape so that Paul could fly out and demonstrate it to them. And we were the first people. They didn't even know the answer. They were like, oh, you must be serious. Uh, and then he took it out and it worked the first time, which was kind of miraculous because we had to be very careful to make that work. And then this kit computer company, mm -hmm. the very first personal computer company became our first customer. Yes. One of the things that is particularly amazing, and I was watching the docu-series thinking about this, is that right from the beginning, it seems, you and Paul said that your vision was a computer on every desk and in every home. But this was at a time, just to remind listeners, when most of these computers were the size of refrigerators. So how was that even something that you could fathom? What were you thinking that would look like? Well, the people who make the chips, that is, put more and more transistors onto that chip, we're on an improvement rate, which is being deemed Moore's Law, Gordon Moore predicted it, which they would double every couple of years. And so Paul and I knew the power of those chips would let them be very, very cheap and very inexpensive. And if we did the software or got other companies to do the software, then it would be a powerful individual tool. That seemed crazy to a lot of people. Even the existing computer companies 
kind of thought that's such a fringe idea. Out in California, there were a few other people who believed in this idea, and they, it almost got tied up with the political idea of power to the people, that the big companies wouldn't be the ones with these computers oppressing you and sending you these bills that were wrong. You know, you would have computers as an individual that would kind of empower small groups of people. So there was a lot of activity on the West Coast about this idea of personal computing. I think early on in the existence of the company, there was a very important lesson that it seems like it's never been far from front of mind, which is what happened with IBM. And you guys were in a way centrally involved with this. In 1980, I think it would be fair to say that IBM was probably, as a company, in terms of size and dominance and whatever, not that different from Microsoft today, right? Just dominant. More dominant. More dominant. What was the, in a way, fatal decision for them that was also the beginning of your guys going on a huge run? They were a big hardware company that made their money by selling to big businesses in a very tops-down way. They did decide they had a lab that didn't have much to do because its product had failed. And they told them, hey, try to do something quickly. Why don't you try to do one of these personal computers? And the lab's idea was to depend on Intel for the chip and Microsoft for the software. And so they became a, a licensee, a customer, and a really great machine, the IBM personal computer, was put together and launched in 1981. Then there was a question of would IBM continue to work with us or they would just do their own work. Well, they weren't very good at software. They didn't really see the power of the personal computer. And they, you know, they made so much money off of these big customers that you know, the culture was a sales culture. And so this kind of crept up on them. They had a division that did this work, but then it became so competitive and didn't draw on their skill sets that... Eventually, they left the personal computer industry. But our relationship with them and managing that was key in the 1980s and 90s to Microsoft emerging as the top software company. Well, because it was essentially, correct me if obviously if this is wrong, but my understanding was that you guys gave up the possibility of royalties for your product on IBM computers in return for being able to market it elsewhere, which was the greatest thing that ever happened in a way, right? Yeah, the early stuff, we didn't require royalty uh, for that base level software. And we were thinking a lot about how the IBM relationship would evolve. IBM is still there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a company that sells to big enterprises, but now this more software centric companies, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft are way more valuable. So you know, that original dream of the centrality of software and that, you know, we could even manage to become bigger than IBM and, you know, that that's our youthful dream became a reality. Just a couple more questions about the rise of Microsoft, because I think it's important to set the scene for how you were able to do such great philanthropic work in more recent years. But I mean, the company, I guess, went public in 86 after, I guess, shortly after the first Windows system, it seems like it was Windows 95 that took it to a totally different level. Why was that product so game-changing? Well, the screen of a personal computer just had these characters on it because it wasn't 
fast enough to kind of draw graphical pictures. But as the chip got better, we saw that the pioneering work back at Xerox of this graphical approach was becoming possible. And at the same time, Apple was seeing that. So they did the Macintosh. We did Windows that ran on PCs. Actually, it took a long time to catch on. There were early versions, but the version in 1995 called Windows 95. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the applications we did, people realized, okay, the graphical approach is the right approach. And it just wiped out the previous way of interacting with the machine. Microsoft had done both for the Macintosh and for Windows really great software, word processing, spreadsheet, presentation software that overall now we call Office. We went from being slightly the largest of all the microcomputer software companies to by 2001, we are way bigger than anyone else. You know, subsequently, of course, these other big companies come along, but we reach our sort of peak of industry share in the late 90s, early 2000. Being able to create software is one amazing skill set. Being able to run a large company is, I would imagine, a, a totally different one. You now had this massive company. It was big before, but this is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. How big a learning curve was that for you? Well, I enjoyed figuring out how we'd scale up. You know, how do you do business around the world? How do you build a sales force? You know, how do you build a brand around it? I was able, because of our success, to hire in people, and they, they saw that it was a growing field. And so the teams we built all over the world, you know, helped drive that success. And I enjoyed being the CEO. And so until the year 2000, mm -hmm. I was the CEO. Then I wanted to focus more on the products. And so I had Steve Ballmer take over for me in that role. But we, he and I together, there was a real learning curve of bringing in experienced people and dealing with a lot more than just writing code. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you stepped down as CEO in January 2000. And since then, I think just an increasing part of your focus has consistently, increasingly been philanthropy. And I guess I want to set the scene for this topic by just asking you, when did you first feel yourself wealthy? And when did you then first feel a responsibility to share that wealth with people less fortunate? Well, my parents were very community-oriented, volunteered a lot, and wanted to sort of spread that idea to their kids. When Microsoft goes public in 1986, I already have, you know, on paper, a you know, kind of ridiculous amount of money. It was like three or four hundred million. Yeah. And then as the company grew, that got larger and larger. So the question of how would I give that back to society got me studying all the history of philanthropy and you know funding scientific discovery. What did Rockefeller Foundation do in health or in agriculture? And there are some amazing exemplars. And I didn't really get time for that. Somewhat part-time in the 90s, I started doing some gifts and my dad would help with that. The year 2000 was when I made a very large gift and the foundation became the largest mm -hmm. and started spending over a billion dollars a year at that point. It's grown a lot. You know, now we're up to over $6 billion a year. But I got part-time to help seed that process. And then in 2008, I chose to stop working full-time at Microsoft, just work part-time there. 
and make the foundation my full-time focus because we'd gotten up to a scale. The work was super interesting, super impactful. The global health stuff was going very, very well. And, you know, I could see that I could have a lot of impact yeah. by being there full-time. Well, and I, I think we should note, it's not like it only started with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2000 because there was the William H. Gates Foundation back as far as 94. But the other big thing that I think happened even more recently, as we see in this docuseries, are close friends with Warren Buffett. And together with your wife and Warren Buffett, you all signed this giving pledge in 2010. Why is that a model that I, I get the sense you would encourage other very wealthy people to sign on to as well? Well, there's a question that if you gain wealth of any scale, but particularly of a large scale, how do you go about philanthropy? And it's going to be very different than some profit-oriented business where you have clear market feedback. You're going to be taking on problems where there aren't market signals, things like income mobility or mental illness or quality of the education system. And it's hard to get going as a philanthropist. How do you learn? Do you hire staff? Which problems should you work on? Are, you know, are there people out there to collaborate with? And so as Warren Buffett and Melinda and I were doing more and more philanthropy, those are the three trustees of the foundation, we ended up getting together with other philanthropists, people like George Soros, Oprah Winfrey, Eli Broad, and you know, there were 20 or 30 who were doing a lot and asking them how did they learn, what inspired them, and what should we do to draw more people in? Because our view is that philanthropy, even though it's no substitute for government or the private sector, there are problems that uh, even though philanthropy is a small percentage of the economy, that it's unique at being able to go after. Like even educational innovation, it can fund some new ideas that when they work could improve the entire system. And so the idea that people who are serious about philanthropy should make a public pledge and get together and talk to each other, talk about what's hard, how to make it impactful and enjoyable, that became the giving pledge. Mm -hmm. And that's been a phenomenal success. We have over 200 people, and I spend a bit of time recruiting people in because I think it helps them do better philanthropy, do it, and do it sooner. You mentioned the, the challenge of figuring out where to direct philanthropy at the beginning where you know what are there are so many people that and organizations that need help what do you want to focus on it seems like when you stopped working full-time at microsoft and began traveling more with your wife off into poor countries those issues began to become undeniable to you the the some of the things that you've taken on at the foundation that other organizations other governments people just have sort of avoided. Just to give a, a little taste of what's in the doggy series, why are, whether it's sanitation issues or vaccinations for, in, in some of these third world countries, why did those become your top priorities? Well, the impact you can have per dollar in poor countries is kind of mind blowing. You have children Oh, you know, over 20% of the children dying under the age of five in some countries. And, and there are cheap vaccines that if you get them out, you can drop that very dramatically. Now, we're not alone in that. Governments are involved. But 
you know, getting organized around these new tools and how you, you do a better job getting them out. Since the year 2000, we've gone from over 10 million children dying every year to under 5 million. And so everybody involved, including the governments and the foundation grantees should be energized by that. Mm-hmm. We have a plan by working together to get from 5 million down to two and a half million by 2030. So that's gone way better than we expected. And, you know, it's saving lives for literally hundreds of dollars. Mm-hmm. There are very important things like improving education that we give to in the United States, but you're, you're not going to have that, that same impact per dollar. Right. One of the things that I know is important to you is to measure how effective different, you know, constantly measure how effective these tactics are. Are they working at achieving what you set out to do? Can you share some of the ways that you evaluate and how often you evaluate progress? Well, the number of children dying was known pretty roughly, but if you got you know, into a country or tried to figure out which disease it was, even that data was pretty weak. And in the private sector, you know, the idea of, okay, how many am I selling? How many is my competitor selling? You, know, you kind of take for granted that you're making decisions based on a lot of data. We had to help a partner create this global burden of disease to gather the data and really figure out, okay, how much was diarrhea or was it going up or down in in various countries? So now we have this amazing international health metrics and evaluation that every year updates that so we can see what's going well, what's not going well. So the measurement piece is often the first thing you need to put in place uh, so that you're able to get feedback into that system and say, okay, why is this country doing so well compared to this other country? Or why is this disease is a big part of the problem? Why why don't we have a, a vaccine or a drug that can help us with that problem? Right. So why has it taken until Inside Bill's Brain, decoding Bill Gates, this new doggy series on Netflix, why has it taken until now for you to agree to cooperate with a substantial documentary about your life. I I just kind of wondered in the back of my head if there was anything related to the the death of Steve Jobs or the illness and eventual death of Paul Allen that made you think more about sort of big picture or legacy or anything like that in terms of just not putting it off any longer. Well, this movie's not a biography of Bill Gates, It captures, although it does go back and and go through my key relationships Mm -hmm. in a really great way, what it's capturing is that I'm working on these risky problems that wouldn't get this kind of attention unless I had picked them. Mm -hmm. So like a super safe, super cheap nuclear power source to help with climate change Mm -hmm. or the sophistication to take polio eradication, which wasn't succeeding, and improve it so it would succeed. And then the idea of this reinvented toilet. Yes. And so, you know, Davis talked, okay, how did I recruit people? What kind of expertise? In each one of these cases, it really still could fail. It could be three out of three. I, I, I'm close to it, so I'm biased. I, <laughs> I think I have, you know, meaningful chance of success in each of the three, Mm -hmm. uh, particularly polio, because we have so many great partners there. But you get a a sense of 
you know, why I picked these, dealing with setbacks, building teams. You know, these are things that come that I learned broadly at Microsoft, but when it has to do with Africa and poor countries and biology, you know, I've had to switch, you know, my understanding of the systems and where I go and, and draw on expertise. You get a strong sense of how Warren Buffett's been a huge partner and influence. My wife, Melinda, is my equal partner in all this, the work that we do, and she brings unique skills that help complement my skills, although we have a lot, a lot of uh, common skills. So it's, it's not, you know, the history of thing. I mean, it's not like, you know, fog of war or something right, where right, you're right. trying to reflect on somebody's entire life. 30 years from now, you know, I'll, I'll call up Davis and say, okay, <laughs> uh, let's do the biographical one now. And, you know, hopefully we'll have not only polio eradicated, but malaria and many, many other diseases. Let me ask you, why was Davis Guggenheim someone who, how did you meet him and why was he someone that you trusted to tell this story? Well, Davis did a brilliant job on an inconvenient truth of getting, driving awareness of climate change with Al Gore. I met him when he was doing Waiting for Superman, which is about the U.S. public school system. And he and I chatted about that movie and I played a small role in it. And so that got he and I talking you know, I love documentaries, so we had a lot of common ground, and we exchange book ideas all the time. And, you know, I know Davis. I know he, you know, captures the human story. I thought he would do a great job. And, you know, getting these causes to draw more talent in, more commitment, and more inspiration, actually, that, you know, all three of these things will, according to me, improve the way world in a meaningful way if they succeed, I thought the documentary would be a positive thing, independent of anything about me in particular. I found it very interesting that in the docuseries, you talk about your brain as a CPU, and there are other references like that. Do you see your, yourself as a computer in a way, and, and how does your brain work? If you had to succinctly sort of explain it to somebody, wh how, why is your brain different than other brains? Well, I don't think it's different. I think the problem of what are the great injustices in the world and are we taking our massive resources, money, science, and trying to improve this human condition, you know, sanitation is just a missed thing that those urban slums, over 2 billion people, are going to literally live in human feces if, if we don't come up with a solution that works there. You know, climate change, this gigantic problem, much harder to solve than people think. And having cheap, safe nuclear would not alone solve it, but be a, a gigantic help. So, you know, I, I, I read a lot and I push myself to think, okay, what are these things that are missing? And how do we get a team with a super ambitious goal like we did with vaccines? You know, that's not the movie because that actually was successful and you know, doesn't need to be considered at risk. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think I'm only different in that I've thought a lot about innovation and how you pull together resources around innovations that will make a difference for the human condition. Taking a, a cue from the docuseries, I wonder if we can close with sort of a rapid fire, just big picture, random assortment of stuff, if that's all right with you. Just okay. the first thing that comes to mind. What other person's brain that you know of works most like yours? Well, in the 
financial area, thinking about companies and what they do. Warren Buffett is just a lifelong student reading everything and refining his model. You know, he's amazing. And that's been a, a real inspiration for me. Since you're probably, uh, I would have, I'm quite confident the smartest person I'll ever get to talk to. I've got to ask you the big question. Is there a God? You know, I grew up in a family that had me go to church. I think religious belief, you know, is associated with being moral and the idea that kids on Sundays should have moral lessons and have that community, I think is a really great thing. I don't know any better than anyone else about a particular God and most scientific thinkers you know, question certain of the specifics, but the role of religion, there's a lot of good and, and some not good things that, that come out of that. Where do you do your best thinking? You know, if I go off where I have a lot of time and I just sit and scribble on a tablet, maybe pace a little bit, if it's something very complex, I'll take a day or two and just be off by myself working on the, the problem. What's been your biggest mistake? You know, I, because I really count on sort of scientific engineering innovation, there are elements of how hard it is to get these things delivered or, you know, some of the people-related things in terms of how you pull the organization together and making sure it's super high morale that I'm not a natural at. And I, you know, Melinda's better at those things. Other, I've had lots of people around who help me understand how you bring that in is a key part of the, you know, the project teams that really get things done. This is just kind of a silly one, but how much cash do you carry on you? Sometimes none, you know, sometimes a few hundred dollars. Yeah. What was the last great movie that you saw and the last TV show you were really into? Well, I'm watching a ton of these TV series, you know, and uh, waiting for the next season, you know, A Million Little Things, Sex Education, Money Heist, The Queen, you know, this is a kind of magical time period in terms of the number of great things on TV. I read a lot. You know, I just finished Loon Shots, which is about how you create an atmosphere for innovation. Because I'm interested in a lot of areas, I end up reading huge amounts of nonfiction. So, you know, maybe 15% of the time, I'll, somebody will tell me a great fiction book. Yeah. Which other company today most reminds you of Microsoft in the sense of maybe it's a growing company or or it's a already successful company, just which in its operations? Well, Google is, you know, a company that's done a lot of amazing things, you know, hires super smart people, works on very tough long-term problems. They're more like Microsoft. They're more similar to each other than even the other other tech companies. You met with President Trump in March 2018. Is it true that he asked you to come work for him at the White House? And is it also true that you kind of had to explain the discrepancy between a few afflictions? Well, it's important to engage the U.S. government. Our foundation has worked with every administration. In fact, the Bush administration was the one that, on a bipartisan basis, increased foreign aid a lot. And so, yeah, I've been willing to meet with the president and talk. I, I did encourage him to get a science advisor who could help him look at some of the potential innovations the U.S. could lead in. He, in you know, I'm sure somewhat humorous way, said, oh, why don't you come and do that for me? I don't think that was a serious <laughs> suggestion. 
But yeah, there's, you know, talking about the great progress in global health and vaccines and different diseases, I did do that. You know, I haven't seen him since then, but, you know, the U.S. government is a, plays a key role in all this work. What's the greatest threat facing the world today? Well, there's unlikely things like a pandemic coming along or a asteroid or big volcanic eruption. You know, to me, the U.S.-China relationship and making sure that doesn't become hostile, that, you know, we work in a positive way, which the last year has not, you know, been pushing that in the right direction. I, I push that pretty close to the top of the list. I do think the great inequities where, you know, we don't help the poorest, whether it's with disease or education, people, we don't get a good grade on that. And so I'd put that right there as, as something that deserves huge focus. And then climate change is going to cause so much trouble that we need to get going on that one right now. What do you not have but most want that money cannot buy? Well, infinite time. It'd be nice to have even more time. And lastly, how would the world be different today if Bill Gates had never developed an interest in computers? You know, it's hard to say. You know, certainly everything that happened would happen. Would it happen later in a different form? Very hard to do those counterfactuals. You know, it's possible philanthropic work that the acceleration of saving lives is even more dramatic, larger in that case than in the tech side. But, you you know, it's hard to do counterfactuals. Sure. Well, thank you so much. It's been a, an honor. Thanks. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.